0: We're in Luke chapter 5 today, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 26, and we're talking about Jesus' power and authority to heal and forgive. His power and authority to heal and forgive. A few weeks ago in Luke chapter 4, Jesus got up in the synagogue in Nazareth and read from the prophet Isaiah chapter 61 and talked about the mission and the purpose of the Messiah. And then when he had finished reading that, he said, today these words are fulfilled in your midst. Meaning that I am the fulfillment of this long-awaited prophecy. Then he started going out and teaching and healing and casting out demons as proof that he was the Messiah. And today he continues to do that as evidence that he is not only the Messiah, but that he is God in human flesh. So we're picking up the story today in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. This is what Luke writes for us. He says, in one of the villages... Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. And when the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him and said, I am willing, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. He said, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required of the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster, and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all of Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. And some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. And they tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law said to themselves, Who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. It's interesting that um, when it says that, uh, where was it back there? I lost my place. Oh, it says one day when Jesus was teaching, this second miracle happened of the the man with paralysis being healed. And Matthew uh, locates this miracle right after the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is coming down from the mountain by the Sea of Galilee after he has preached this three-chapter sermon on the mountain. That's when uh, the context of that miracle takes place. So it's kind of interesting here. Just as Peter had fallen on his face for shame of his sinfulness when they were fishing, and Jesus said, push out into the deep and throw out your nets again. Even though you've fished all night, you've caught nothing, I want you to go back out. Even though you've cleaned up for the day, you've washed the nets, I want you to I want you to listen to me. I want you to trust me. And so they pushed out into the deep, and Peter obeyed the Lord and said, Because you've said it, Lord, I'll do it. And they filled two boats full of fish to the point that the nets broke and the boats were sinking. And at that point, Peter fell down before the Lord in shame for his sinfulness and said, Lord, get away from me, for I'm a sinful man. And in the same way, this leper, this unnamed leper, falls face downward before the Lord today in our passage. Because of his uncleanness. And the thing that came to mind for me this week is, when's the last time that you fell to your knees or fell to your face because of the earnestness of your need? Has there ever been a time in your life where things were so bad that you just collapsed to the ground because of the earnestness of your need? Has there ever been a time as an adult that you did that? There are many times as kids where we did that and said, Mom, Dad, no, please. (laughs) But as adults, it's another thing. Probably another way to ask the question is, what would it take for you to do this? It would probably involve a life and death situation, most likely for many of us. I was reading this week about what Bible interpreters call second naivete, and the problem with reading the Bible is that so many times when we come to a passage, we're like, oh yeah, I've read this story. Or I've heard this preached, and I and I know that there's this and this and this point. And it's really difficult if you've grown up in the church or if you've been reading your Bible for long to always approach Scripture with new eyes and through a new lens. And one of the things that we do when we read scripture is oftentimes. We jump immediately to word studies or to theology, and we lose the emotion of the people in the text. We lose the ability to put ourselves in their shoes and to feel what they must have been feeling. Think about the desperation of this man that he falls down before the Lord. Who was this guy? It's interesting that he's anonymous, that speaks volumes. His name is not recorded for us because he's a leper. He was an outcast from society, from fellowship and community. But what was his story? Did he have a family at one point? Had he always suffered from leprosy? Or had he lived a normal life for many years and then had everything taken from him because of this shameful, alienating disease? Leprosy in biblical times is quite a bit different than our modern-day Hansen's disease. An advanced case of leprosy, as Dr. Luke here describes it, he knew what he was talking about, this was a a severe case, involved the progressive decay of one's body arising from poisoning of the blood. The face and different parts of the body would get attacked and gradually disfigured and distended and destroyed until the sufferer became a hideous spectacle with Literal parts of their body starting to drop off and fall and oozing uh, sores. Lepers were quarantined. They were alienated from fellowship and from community. And whenever they had to travel, they were commanded to walk on the opposite side of the road from everyone else. And as they would walk, to yell out, unclean, unclean. And I'm sure as they would yell that out, they probably in their hearts felt unloved, unloved, lonely, alienated, ostracized, all the things that they must have been feeling. They were seen as objects of God's wrath. And they felt this deeply because of the way that they were treated by other people. Maybe... This is why the unnamed leper, although he doesn't seem to doubt Jesus' power for a moment, is very much unsure of Jesus' willingness. Ability and willingness are two different things. If you are willing, you can make me clean. I like his petition. He's one of the only people in Scripture that approaches the Lord on this level. I don't have any doubt that you have the ability. I've heard the stories of what you've done. And there is no doubt in my mind that you can heal me. You can make me clean. The question is, are you willing? Will you be different than everyone else that I've encountered? And will you extend healing to me? This leper is wondering if Jesus will... Do what no one else has done. Well, I believe our passage this morning is a window through which we can see three three very important things. I believe it teaches us at least three important things, and the first is the heart of God. I believe that our passage today speaks volumes on the heart of God. God's willingness is not about being backed into a corner and having to do something that he doesn't want to do. Willingness today in our world is pretty much equivalent to, well, I'll I'll allow it, or or consent, something that we permit with reluctance, something that perhaps we feel contractually obligated uh, to allow or fulfill, but there's not really desire or excitement or enthusiasm there. And yet God's willingness in Scripture is proactive. It's not reactive, it's proactive. God is always taking the initiative because His heart is to seek and to save the lost. His heart is to be that great physician that the sick and the needy are so desperately looking for. We're reminded in Romans 5.8 that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As Brittany said, we didn't have to clean ourselves up and make ourselves presentable, which is a joke anyways if we think about that. But God, in the midst of our sinfulness, reached out to the person of Jesus and proactively initiated salvation. And so Jesus' declaration of willingness was the same here as really saying, I care. I care deeply about you. You have value to me. I can't ignore your need because I'm invested in your well-being. I can't go on and ignore you. I have to do something about this. And Jesus could have healed the man with a simple spoken word like he did so many other times in Scripture. But instead, he chose to compassionately touch the man as he pronounced his healing. Now, I was at Vaughn's the other day in line getting groceries, and I'm I was like, oh my goodness, what is that smell? And I realized there was a homeless person in front of me in the line who had definitely been wearing his jeans for a long time and done about everything in them. And it just was a strong, strong stench of urine. And I just thought, you know, as I was preparing this passage, I thought, this would probably be like me, you know, embracing this guy and saying, hey, how you doing? And just, you know, Bring them close and just, you know, to come into contact with that. It's not something that your nature goes, yeah, hey, bring it in close, you know. You're thinking, keep your space. And that Jesus compassionately, lovingly touches this guy, even though his spoken word probably would have been enough. And so he's communicating not only that he has the power, but that he cares. God is the only one who can come into contact with impurity and cleanse it without himself becoming impure all of the priests all the religious leaders whenever they would come into contact with impurity go back and read leviticus chapter 13 and 14 and all of the laws and stipulations and regulations and ceremonial cleansing this and that the other that people had to go through then that priests had to go through when they came into contact with disease and impurity And yet Jesus is immune from it as God. It's like as he comes into contact with impurity, the impurity goes away, it vanishes, it reverses. Because he is so pure and holy, he takes it away. Which is, again, proof that he is God. As I was preparing this week, I thought, I I wonder when was the last time this guy had ever been touched. You know? There's something healing about touch, about warmth and love and touch. And I wonder if this guy could even remember the last time that he had been touched. And yet Jesus reached out and just kind of touched him. You know, many of us aren't so old that we can't remember the first time we ever started dating somebody. And you, you felt like, maybe this person likes me. And you go to hold their hand for the first time. And it's like every neuron and nerve ending in your body is located in your hand. And you're like, I never knew holding someone's hand could be like, oh my gosh. Because it communicates love and acceptance and affirmation. And I can't imagine how this guy must have felt as Jesus placed his hand upon him. A warmth, a, 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 maybe a, a sensation just kind of riveting through his body, I don't know. But for someone who had been alienated and ostracized and who lived alone, it must have meant the world to him, not only to receive healing, but to to have that compassion communicated to him as well. Most of us today don't struggle with ability. We struggle with willingness, especially in America. Our issue is not ability, it's willingness. Most of the biggest failures in my life over the course of the years, have had nothing to do with ability and everything to do with willingness. The selfish use of my time, the selfish use of my money, my involvement or lack thereof, had nothing to do with ability and had everything to do with willingness. I remember years ago watching Robin Williams do a... a, uh, comedy stand-up comedy routine and he's going along and he was just like firing on all cylinders as you know that he did he just was just insane comedic mind and as he was talking he noticed this woman in one of the front rows and a ring that she was wearing and he's like oh my goodness that is a gorgeous ring that is huge that is he's going on and on about it and she's kind of proud and then without missing to be he says you can either wear that or feed half of africa and it changed really fast. But it accentuated that point, you know? Ability is one thing, willingness is another. Ability is one thing, willingness is another. And willingness hardly adequately expresses the heart of God because, as I said, willingness can also express reluctance or resignation. I think... Better than willingness, it's enthusiastic eagerness. The heart of God is enthusiastic eagerness. For God so loved the world that He enthusiastically, eagerly gave Himself. That whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but enjoy eternal life. You know, we miss that in John 3.16. The world sees John 3.16 as this rageful, you know, vengeful God that is so whacked out that he's got he's to brutalize his own son to appease his anger. And yet scripture says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That somehow as Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus as part of the Trinity was inseparable from God. God felt that pain. God didn't just offer his son, he offered himself in our place. Willingly enthusiastically eagerly because the heart of God is to be in relationship with each and every one of us the question is whether we will acknowledge His existence and acknowledge that he created us for his glory and to experience his joy for all of eternity he created us for his glory and to experience his joy for all of eternity I love the shorter Westminster Catechism. It's a series of questions and answers, and one of those questions is, what is the chief purpose of, or goal of man? And the answer is, the chief purpose and goal of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Man, that's, that's a far different thing than you know living before God in fear because of the consequences or doing the right things because it's expected of you it's what it's it's that perfect love that John talks about in first John by this we know that we have come to love the Lord that we keep his commandments and they're not burdensome like this is the joy of my heart and my my life to to live for my my Lord and to glorify him and to experience his joy Scripture says, by the way, that's what we will enter into one day, enter into my joy. In his presence is fullness of joy. That's what's going to energize us for all of eternity is that contagious joy of being in his presence, that life-giving, life-sustaining joy, the heart of God. Well, the second thing that I see our passage teaching us is our greatest need, our greatest need. And it's highlighted in our passage that our greatest need is not physical healing, but cleansing from sin. Our greatest need is not physical healing, but cleansing from sin. In biblical times, the Jews believed that all disease and infirmities were the result of someone's sin. And so in our passage, both the leper and the paralytic would have been representative of people that they believed were experiencing God's judgment. When they saw a paralyzed person or a leopard, they weren't thinking, oh, how sad. They were thinking, man, I wonder what they did. And they're probably getting the just rewards of whatever horrible thing they did. And thank God I'm not like that. You know, like the Pharisee and the publican in the temple praying, the Pharisee saying, thank God I'm not like him, and the the sinner's beating his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a wretched sinner. What a difference in perspective. But that's how... Jews in the first century viewed the infirmed and the diseased, and whether or not these guys' conditions were the consequence of their own sin and of God's judgment, that's a whole other sermon and a whole other argument, and at best, it's speculation. You can't determine that. And what's the point? The point is that Jesus introduced them to the favor and the mercy of God in his healing touch. In the case of the leper, it wasn't about him just being cured of his skin disease, But it was also about him ceremonially being cleansed through a temple sacrifice. That's what the Mosaic law commanded. And this would have led to him going to Jerusalem to do this, because as we said a few weeks ago in the local synagogues, they were just about teaching and worship. The only sacrifices that took place were in Jerusalem at the temple, So this guy had to travel from the Galilee region, we don't know the specific town that he's in, all the way to Jerusalem, which was a fair hike in that day, and and have the priest pronounce him as cleansed, and think about the testimony that that would have spread. And you know it was a testimony because it says in our passage, the very next miracle by the time Jesus goes to heal the paralytic, it says that every, basically every Pharisee and teacher of the law was present... From Galilee and Judea and even as far as Jerusalem. Why? Because this guy went to the temple. And all the way to the temple, he's saying, oh my gosh, I've been healed. This is a miracle. And the priest was pronouncing that and confirming that. Well, for the paralytic, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, again, from every village of Galilee and Judea and all from Jerusalem, The evidence of the leper's testimony and cleansing, it was obvious. They couldn't deny it. But they were critical of Jesus because they saw his healing of the man as misguided and short-sighted. You know, you can heal this guy, but his sin put him in this position. And you can help him walk again, but his sin is going to lead him right back to that condition again. And that's why Jesus doesn't start off by telling them to stand up. He starts off by saying that his, his sins are forgiven but they take issue with that too because that's pure blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. We've mentioned this many times. You and I can forgive someone who sins against me, but I can't absolve someone of sins that they committed against someone else. Only God has that authority and power and the Jews knew that. And so Jesus is doing something that only God can do. And so... It's a lot easier to pronounce forgiveness than to prove it with a miracle, but Jesus does both. So I'm going to perform a miracle so that you know I not only have power over disease and infirmity and disabilities, but also that I have the power to forgive sins because I'm God. And so he does both. He addresses the man's greatest need, which is his sin, and then he heals him of the paralysis as well proving that he's the Messiah, proving that he's God's anointed one, proving that he is God in human flesh. Friends, our greatest need today is not more money. It's not having a better job. It's not finding that perfect relationship that will make us so happy and fulfilled. It's not even being healed of what ails us. Our greatest need is to be at peace with God through Jesus Christ because our sin is taken care of and we don't have to walk around in shame and guilt because we know the price has been paid and that we stand in freedom before God because it's not held against us. Jesus has covered it with his death on the cross. That's our greatest need <clears throat> and this is the only thing that brings us peace in the present and confidence as we face the uncertainty of the future. That it doesn't matter what we face in the future because we know that our life is held firmly and securely in the hand of God because he has given us salvation and no one can take it away. And so it doesn't matter what the future holds because we know what our our eternity looks like. And we know that we are protected by the sovereign care of God. Nothing can get to us except through his sovereign permissive will. And that's a secure, peaceful, confident place to be. Again, it's more than willingness. It expresses that enthusiastic eagerness. And I believe that's exactly what 2 Peter 3.9 is all about. God is not slow in keeping His promises, some count slowness, but the Lord is patient, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The critics back in even biblical times were saying, yeah, right, God's going to come back. It's been a long time. I don't think God's coming back. They were saying that even 2,000 years ago. And Peter said the only reason why God is delayed is because he's compassionate and he's patient. And he doesn't want people to spend an eternity outside of his presence. But he wants to bring everyone possible into the fold, into a loving relationship with him. Because he's not willing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. Repentance. Well, the third thing that I believe our text is teaching us today is the opportunity before us today. Today is our opportunity. As I said, in Luke four, Jesus reads from isaiah sixty one in that synagogue in Nazareth, where he grew up, and then he finishes reading it, sits down, and it didn't mean he was done. That's when the teaching began, because as we as we learned, rabbis would sit down to teach. They would stand to read the scripture. They would sit down to teach. And when he sat down and everyone's eyes were fixed on him, he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your very midst. And it's so interesting what Luke says in our passage in verse 26. Look at how our passage closes. And they were all seized with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. It's no mistake that that wording is there. They are realizing this this, this is it. What has been prophesied about and predicted is happening right now. Jesus is ushering in the last days. And I know last days doesn't seem like it when it's been 2,000 years now. But the last days began with Jesus because he is ushering in the kingdom of God. He is bringing the fulfillment of all the prophecies that predicted Jesus. And foretold what he would do. And everyone was astonished because they were witnessing this long awaited day of fulfillment and prophetic promise happening through his, his work as Messiah. I love what Scripture says in the book of Hebrews. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. And the message of Scripture is, Today is the day to respond. James says don't act like tomorrow is something that you're entitled to. Don't say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a place and engage in business. He says for you don't know that your life is just like a vapor. Instead we ought to say if the Lord wills tomorrow we will go to such and such a place and like every day is a gift from God. Every breath that we take in is a gift from God. Nothing is to be assumed. And so Today is the time to respond. And Scripture continually says, today if you see God at work, today if you hear God's voice, today if you feel that God is inviting you, speaking to you, today is the time to respond. Not tomorrow, not later on, but today. Today, in our passage, was the day that Jesus again was displaying his power and authority to heal and forgive. And Luke's primary goal in our passage is for us to understand and acknowledge that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is that promised anointed one that had been predicted. He's the fulfillment of that. He is God come to rescue mankind. That's his number one purpose and goal in our passage. Certainly an appropriate application of our passage comes from understanding that as Christ followers, We need to reflect the heart of the Father. We need to reflect the heart of the Father. And I hope that one of the ways that we reflect the heart of our Father is by translating our ability into willingness, translating our ability into enthusiastic eagerness to meet the needs of those around us and to embrace the unloved and to... Heal those who are so desperate for the touch of God. We bear his image and his name. Will we reflect ability alone or will we also reflect and demonstrate ability compassionately motivated by enthusiastic eagerness? I love what John says in 1 John chapter 3. We know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray.